Greetings, I am Evangelist Dr. Sharon Westbrooks, the host of God's Inputs for You on the Resilient Christian Radio Network. Thank you for joining me for this broadcast. I appreciate each of you for tuning in. Today is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States of America, a federal holiday celebrated every third Monday of January. It's often a day where many people recommit to acts of service and revisit the legacy of Dr. King, a civil rights activist who protested white supremacy and institutional violence at the state and federal levels, fought against poverty and economic injustice, and was a fierce leader in assuring voting rights for marginalized Americans. MLK Day often comes with scrutiny from some and hope for others, and this year is no different, particularly at a time when our political climate is hostile and our government is non-functioning appropriately. Unfortunately, on this day, many people throughout this country whitewashed Dr. King's legacy. For if American history had the final say, Dr. King would be known for only one speech about a man and his dream of nonviolent integration. Preston Mitchum, writer, activist, legal policy analyst, and collective action for safe spaces and res- resides in Washington, D.C., board of director member, expressed every year, Historians paint an inaccurate picture of Dr. King's legacy by celebrating I Have a Dream as his most pivotal speech, a moment when racism was proportionally vanquished. Perhaps it was his defining moment, but certainly for an entirely different reason than the idea of racial unity with which it has become synonymous. Make no mistake about it. There are many reasons to love the aforesaid speech given at the 1963 March of Washington for Jobs and Freedoms in Washington, D.C. It was made at the heart of the civil rights movement, orchestrated by civil rights activist Bayard Rustin, and could appear to describe racism as a bygone era while glorifying the promise of a multiracial, multicultural future a false representation of children playing together in America's post-racial after-school sandbox. But I Have a Dream was a searing indictment of white supremacy in the United States, and still is. Dr. King was speaking for the Negro, who finds himself in exile on his own land, critiquing the unjust social, political, and economic conditions that left black people still languished in the corner of American society. And in the nation's 2013 article, The Misremembering of I Have a Dream, journalist Gary Young investigates the whitewashing of Dr. King's most beloved speech and why Americans undermine Dr. King's legacy instead of honoring his scathing critiques against capitalism, imperialism, racism, and agencies like the Department of Justice. The speech is profoundly and willfully misunderstood. Vincent Harding, an activist and historian who penned Dr. King's anti-Vietnam War Riverside Church speech, told Young, people take the parts that require the least inquiry, the least change, the least work. Our country has chosen what they consider to be the easier way to work with King. They are aware that something very powerful was connected to him, and he was connected to it, but they are not ready to really take on the kind of issues he was raising even there. 
This refusal is grapple with the full scope of Dr. King's legacy manifests itself in two ways. First, it forces us to pretend that American whites revered Dr. King and his work, despite the fact that he was subjected to numerous threats, death threats and bombings throughout his life, wiretapped and followed by J. Edgar Hoover and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for over a decade, and subsequently assassinated by the racist James Earl Ray in 1968. According to a 1968 Harris poll conducted the same year of his assassination, 75% of Americans did not approve of Dr. King and his politics had fallen out of favor even among his friends and supporters. Second, it also causes us to forget Dr. King's contributions beyond I Have a Dream. For example, his speech, Give Us the Ballot, which plainly described the violent prejudice and voting rights inequitability that plagued black Americans. In 1957, while speaking at the prayer pilgrimage of for freedom, Dr. King reminded us that black people continued disenfranchisement at the ballot box was undemocratic, unpatriotic, and an intentional betrayal by their country. He therefore demanded voting rights for all Americans from President Eisenhower and the members of Congress. Dr. King noted, give us the ballot and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of any anti-lynching law. We will by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. It's eerie how important, how important Dr. King's words still are today. Today, voter suppression tactics and the remnants of Jim Crow laws prevent many black people and formerly incarcerated people from voting. Before Florida ended its 150-year-old ban and passed Amendment 4 in November 2018, one million Floridians did not have the constitutional right to vote. What's more, in 12 states, felons lose their voting rights indefinitely for certain crimes or require a governor's pardon in order for voting rights to be restored. Oftentimes, they may face an additional waiting period after the completion of their sentence before voting rights can be restored. Dr. King understood the importance of equity in voting and how black people could shape elections, and he's been proven correct. According to the Wall Street Journal, the blue wave of the 2018 midterm elections that elected at least 40 Democrats to Congress with historic wins for women of color across the country was bolstered by overwhelming support from black voters. 92% of black women and 86% of black men voted. 62 years later, Dr. King's words matter. While progress is being made to restore voters' rights in places like Virginia and Florida, there are still millions of voters who cannot vote. Whether because of prior felony convictions or the color of their skin, if voting is indeed a right, we must allow for full voter restoration and dismantle systems that deny people, especially marginalized people, access to the ballot box. 
Dr. King was more than the dream we misremember today. He was an activist, a freedom fighter. Our uh, great brother, he worked for all Americans. On this day, we not only must ensure Dr. King's legacy isn't whitewashed, we must continue to reclaim his history. Additionally, as people around the nation and even the world pause to remember the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is essential to understand that his message went far beyond civil rights. It also embraced the social gospel, which held that Christians must work to improve economic, moral, and social conditions here on earth. When advocating for civil rights, Dr. King only asked for those things promised in the country's founding document, namely equality of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, some were shocked and appalled that King also called for economic fairness and end to war and mending of the social fabric that divided not only along racial lines, but also among the haves and the have-nots. King, like social gospel reformers before him, saw Christ's teaching as a means to bring about political, social, and cultural change. In a 1952 letter to his future wife, Coretta Scott King, Dr. King wrote, Let us continue to hope, work, and pray that in the future we will live to see warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel that I will preach to the world. According to the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University, King was a self-described advocator of the social gospel. King's theology was concerned with the whole man, not only his soul, but his body, not only his spiritual well-being, but his material well-being. As historians and professor Venice Cook observes, his message was global and it was revolutionary. However, when depicting him exclusively in the context of black radicals during the long civil rights movement or the labor movement, these scholars have a tendency to downplay the most fundamental component of King's activism, which was his religion. Over the years, King's critics have painted him as a radical socialist without understanding that his thinking was grounded in the social gospel. King was greatly influenced by the teachings of Walter Rauschenbach, a pastor to a Baptist congregation of German immigrants in the Hill's Kitchen section of New York. In his 1907 book, Christianity and the Social Crisis, Rauschenbach proposed, whoever uncouples the religious and social life has not understood Jesus. Whoever sets any bounds for the reconstructive power of the religious life over the social relations and institutions of men, to that extent, denies the faith of the master. According to Christopher H. Evans, professor of the history of Christianity at Boston University, Rosenbach asserted that religion's chief purpose was to create the highest quality of life for all citizens. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Evans points out that in King's book, Stride Towards Freedom, he writes, It has been my conviction ever since reading Rosenbach that any religion which professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the social and economic conditions that scar the soul is a spiritually moribund religion only waiting for the day to be buried. 
The social gospel movement was primarily based on what is known as the Lord's Prayer and the idea of God's kingdom on earth. The movement's most pressing question was, what would Jesus do? As first posed by Minister Charles Sheldon in his 1896 novel, In His Steps, Sheldon's book has sold more than 30,000 copies and ranks as one of the best-selling books of all time. For a brief period in the 1990s, the phrase gained pop culture status with WWJD bracelets, necklaces, and all that other stuff. However, the social gospel movement based on love thy neighbor and what would Jesus do was swept away by mid-20th century as a type of anti-capitalist, anti-government radicalism which was subservient to the American way of life. King Titus' faith in the social gospel which led to the nonviolent protest that characterized the Montgomery bus boycott, noting that Christ furnished the spirit and motivation. Governor Kay Ivey in her, 2000, in her 2019 inaugural speech said, But we would be less than honest with each other if we did not acknowledge that change has not always come easy. Standing here at Dexter Avenue, we are reminded of two different chapters in Alabama history, a time when the Civil War raged and 90 years later when the Civil Rights Movement was inspired. She further stated, it is important for all of us to acknowledge our past. After all, it was at a pulpit just down the street that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. so powerfully taught us how to confront struggles with honesty, courage, and love. Governor Ivey confirmed her mantle by invoking King's spirit in her inaugural address because Alabama is one of the two remaining states to celebrate King and Confederate General Robert E. Lee on the same day. King's vision for America was radical at the time, but in looking back at history, Rauschenbach wrote that Christianity itself was revolutionary and that the progressive reign of love in human affairs will bring about the progressive unity of mankind, a thought not dissimilar than the reformist ideas preached by King. As Professor Cook writes in Martin Luther King Jr., and the long social gospel movement, King's image and significance over the last decade has been recused from the safe, sanitized, and largely national narrative of incremental racial progress in the 1950s and 1960s. Remembering Dr. King demands a look at the broader context of the social change. He championed, love him or hate him. King, like social reformers before him, asked for social equality, but in many ways only asked, what would Jesus do? Well, the word of God conveys what Jesus would do. For over and over through the pens of the inspired writer of the word of God, we find Jesus as a countercultural social reformer breaking barriers and bringing change into the life of society. There's a great deal of biblical evidence that Jesus proclaimed a new way of living and broke down the social barriers between people. John Dominic Croson sees the provision of free healing without any commitment to system of village patronage and his wonderful way of inviting just anybody, male or female, rich or poor, round his meal table as evidence of Jesus being a social reformer. Further, he says, when Jesus healed people, it was not so much their physical disease he was healing, 
but their social alienation. I'm reminded of the woman with the issue of blood and the lepers. Additionally, Richard Horsley sees Jesus as a critic of his society, attacking the Romans for false religion and the priests of Israel for betraying the essence of their faith. Jesus's revolution was a grassroots one, working from the peasants up rather than a political revolution working from the top down to overthrow the current regime. They see him as the founder of a Galilee peace party. Unlike the other revolutionaries from Galilee, his methods were nonviolent. The meek inherit the earth. The peacemakers are blessed. He would establish an egalitarian society where all would have a place to replace patriarchal oppression. Look at Matthew 10, 34 through 37 and Mark 12, 18 through 27. Discipleship meant casting aside everything for the social revolution. Yet, the theory that Jesus was just a social reformer neither fits the social factors of neither Galilee nor the gospel evidence. Jesus was never just a political agitator put to death for his revolutionary message. He was the Lamb of God, dying for the sins of the world. Today, we still work for social change in line with the scripture. Some working for social change want Jesus to baptize their practical ideas. The libertarianists, feminists, and homosexual theologians all point to some truth in their theories, but they also fall short of other Christian requirements. For example, Jesus did not advocate social change, which was morally wrong. This is why many movements of today are not in line with the scripture. The scriptures are clear. Uh, different lifestyles are not acceptable to God. It is not a question of whether these people understand the scripture. They just ignore them. True saints of God cannot do that. They obey the rules, not look for loopholes. Immoral people not only change the goalposts, they discard the rule book. Jesus is a social reformer, but Jesus is more. He is both Lord and Savior. His reforms were always in line with the scripture and with God's expressed word on morality. Just because some people ignore morality does not mean that it does not exist. To call Jesus just a social reformer is to miss entirely his claims to be God's son, to be the Messiah, to be the great one that we call our Savior. It is to ignore the central theme of the cross and resurrection. Social reformer? Yes, but more. He is Lord whose word and morality is to be obeyed. He is Christ whose death and resurrection is to be believed. That is the way God's biggest revolution takes place in our lives. So today, I challenge each of us to be social reformers by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and living a life that is pleasing to God. Well, my time is out, but I do not want to end this broadcast without sharing with you what John in 3.16 conveys. John 3 and 6 conveys, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Additionally, Romans 10 9 through 10 conveys that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth 
the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you believe sincerely Romans 10, 9-10, I ask you to pray this brief prayer of salvation with me. Gracious God, our Father, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for my sins, and you, God, raised Jesus from the dead. I ask you to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me so that I might serve you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. If you prayed the previous prayer with me, you are saved, meaning you are a child of God, a new creation. All of your previous sins are forgiven. For that reason, I ask that you read your Bible, find a church that believes the Bible, and join the church that teaches the Word of God. Well, I appreciate you listening to this broadcast. You may follow me on Facebook Instagram, Twitter, and the RCR Network. Please become a a member. Please contact me through Facebook or Twitter at RCR Network or RCR underscore Network. Well, what I say unto one, I say unto all, watch and pray. Live holy every day. Remember, much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer no power. I love you. God bless you. Make wise choices.